Welcome into this week's edition of Broadcaster Hour. I'm Roger Hoover coming to you from Alabama. We've got Kyle Crooks down in Florida, and let's go just across the state border from where I am in Tuscaloosa. Let's head to Starkville and welcome in the voice of the Mississippi State Bulldogs, Neil Price. Neil, how's everything going? You have the cowbell clanging, ready to go? Yeah, I thought that I was going to be on with Sheldon Cooper and Amy Farrah Fowler today. This feels like fun with flags, but uh, wrong show, I guess. Sorry. Uh, it's uh, It's been good. Uh, you may hear some rain and some thunder in the background. We're getting the remnants of Hurricane Laura, and uh, you know we feel awful for all those folks in Louisiana, especially Lake Charles and, and down that way where we've got friends that had to ride that out earlier in the week. Uh, but, you know, we, we pray everybody's safe. Uh, you know, physical things can be rebuilt, uh, but lives can't. And uh, we're hoping that uh, those folks can get back to on the road to recovery very, very soon. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Neil, we were talking before we came on just about, you know, us being in quarantine and just trying to keep our minds occupied during this time. And hopefully we get some SEC football soon. But for you, what is this time been like as as a broadcaster well boring um that's the best way i can describe it i'm glad sports are back uh this will sound like a radio guy answer uh, i probably have consumed more baseball on radio than i have on television just because the nature of baseball stadiums uh, being being bigger uh, on television, to me, it's still very jarring uh, to see an empty stadium. The cutouts help, but there's still a lot of empty seats. Um, I can't get on board with the virtual fans that they drop in. It looks it looks kind of cheesy to me. But on the radio, and I listen to the Reds quite a bit, uh, it sounds like a, quote, normal game. And I've enjoyed that. Uh, it's, felt, uh, it's felt like last summer in a lot of ways. I think basketball and hockey have done a really nice job because they've been able to scale down those empty venues to make them look much more intimate. Um, basketball's done the thing with the virtual wall where they've got fans that are coming in through different platforms, and it looks like there's some people there. The way the benches are configured now for physical distancing, it looks like you've got folks that are kind of sitting in those first few rows, even though they're the team's. So it's been easier for me to watch those two sports, I think. But but baseball, uh, it's it's been mostly radio for me, and I've really enjoyed it. So when you're first starting your passion for this sports broadcasting, I assume it's at a very young age. Was it baseball, the sport that you grew up listening to the most on radio and Marty Brenneman and the Reds? Is that where the inspiration first came from? Oh, no, no, it, it was football. Um, I was 11. Uh, in 1991. I don't remember the date, but I can remember basically how it unfolded. Uh, my dad and I were on Highway 25E in East Tennessee. Tennessee's playing football on that Saturday, and we're riding in dad's truck, and I'm listening to John Ward and Bill Anderson. And at that moment, I knew this is what I want to do. Um, I had played just enough football at that point and was lucky at that age to be able to understand that I was not going to be a good athlete. I played football because I was short and I was wide and I took up space. That's why I was valuable. Um, but I wasn't going to make a go of it. I was a terrible baseball player and I wasn't a very good basketball player. So my friends were all above average athletes and I wanted a way to be around them to get to spend time with them, uh, to travel with them. And this felt like an avenue that would allow me to do that. But I think a lot of credit goes to John Ward because John had great command of the English language. Whenever he spoke, it sounded like the biggest moment in the history of the world. And he could draw in people from all different backgrounds and make them interested in Tennessee football and Tennessee basketball. And he did it with me. And I knew at that point, this is the this is the thing I want to do. And just started chasing after it. And here we are close to 30 years later. And, uh, you know, it, it's worked out pretty well. So uh, I'm glad that I was in the truck that day. I'm glad John was on the radio. And I'm glad that he planted the seed. 
certainly did plant the seed. It's one thing for you to be in the truck listening to John Ward, but what about when you had the chance to be at Big Orange Broadcasting Camp and get to hear him speak? What did he teach you in those moments? There there are three things that I vividly remember from the first time I got to listen to John Ward, and that was in 2000, so I'm 20 years old at that point. Number one is learn to love the process of preparation. And I think I've been able to get a pretty good handle on that. That's the most important thing if you're going to be successful as a broadcaster. You have to be prepared, and with that preparation comes credibility. Uh, Number two was learn the language. Uh, John Ward had a law degree from the University of Tennessee, and he had great command of the English language, would use words that were seldom used in regular conversations during football and basketball broadcasts, but somehow it clicked and it worked and it added an elegance, I think, that you don't hear in a lot of broadcasts today. And the third, although he was dead serious when he said it, is one that is somewhat comical. When I talk, everybody else in the booth, shut up. And uh, he was definitely in command uh, when when he was in the booth. And I don't think people really understand all of the things that John Ward did in addition to doing the broadcasts on Saturday and on Wednesdays and Saturdays during basketball season. He was a television producer. He produced and, and laid out and basically scripted the, the large portions of those football and basketball broadcasts with regard to pregame and halftime. And he was in total control. Uh, and I think that that speaks volumes about how much detail he put in to everything that he did. And again, it's just another reason I think that he, he was the greatest to ever do it. And with him being such a strong influence, uh, obviously you want to prepare like he does and do things in a similar way. But how did you learn to kind of develop your own style and not necessarily try to copy everything that John did? Well, early on, I did copy everything that he did from from a standpoint of of style and and how I tried to do the games on air. Um, And I've been able to receive two really valuable pieces of advice, one from a broadcaster, one from a guy, to my knowledge, who never broadcast a game in his life. I was doing junior college basketball at Walter State Community College in Morristown, Tennessee. I was 18 years old, and all I knew was to do the games the way that John Ward did Tennessee basketball. Same pacing, same phraseology, all of those things. And one night after a game, a Morristown attorney named Charlie Terry, who was a big supporter of the college and, and of athletics at Walter State, he'd bring a headset to every game. And we're walking out of the gym one night, and Charlie comes over and shakes hands, and He tells me that I'm on the right path. He said, but think about this. Think about being the first you and not the next John Ward. And that resonated at that age. The other really great piece of advice came from Chuck Cooperstein, uh, who is the voice of the Dallas Mavericks and has worked for Westwood One uh, and is a Florida guy. Uh, Kyle will quickly tell you he is a Florida guy. (laughs) Um, Chuck told me after he listened to a tape while I was at Kentucky, that I needed to try to be more conversational. And in saying that, he said, I can't tell you how to do it, but I can tell you that I believe it's what separates good broadcasters from great ones. And the greatest example is Vin Scully. Vin Scully was the most conversational, maybe of anyone who has ever done it. So those two things I try to keep in mind. And I will tell you from the conversational standpoint, it's still a work in progress. But I do think in in the later years at Kentucky, uh, the final five years there, I started to find it and figure it out a little bit and realize that if you can go into a broadcast and approach it as a conversation and not as a dictation, there is a clear difference to how it sounds. And you mentioned the conversational piece of it. I think baseball broadcasters are the best at it because you have it. That's the pace of the game. That's the pace of the broadcast. 
What do you think are the keys to being conversational on a football broadcast, basketball broadcast? Does it have to do a lot with chemistry with your partner? Do you think pacing, diction of your words? What what is some what are things that create that conversational tone that you're looking for? Well, I think with your analyst and your sideline reporter, the conversational piece is easy because you can look them in the eye. They're there. They're real. They're tangible. I thought for me, the toughest part of of embracing that concept was being conversational with the listener, because we want to believe that people care about what we have to say. We want to believe there's someone on the other end listening on a radio, but we're not guaranteed that. It's a privilege that those folks give us time and, and they listen. So for me, the focus when, when Chuck said focus on being more conversational, it was about how do I engage the listener, not necessarily the person that I'm working with. And what I try to do, Kyle, at, at the very core of it is just make sure that I try to speak to the listener like the listener sitting in the booth with me and Matt during a football game or me and Coach Williams uh, courtside during a basketball game. And I don't want them to feel like they're somewhere else. Uh, so it's little phrases, and, and maybe this is oversimplifying it, but we, Coach Williams and, and me, Coach Williams and I, we're not in Starkville. We're glad you are with us in Starkville. We're glad you're sitting in our courtside seats for tonight's game. I try to look at it that way and just hope that little things like that make whomever is on the other end feel like they're right there with us. And, you know, I don't know if I'm being successful with that or not, but that's the only way I know to approach it. So you go to a junior college and then you go to Middle Tennessee State. You graduate in 2003, I believe that I have that right. You do games there and, and you work their women's basketball and baseball for a couple of seasons. And then, lo and behold, here's the Kentucky job. Uh, you do a lot besides just the play-by-play there as well. You're a network producer, uh, network manager as well. Uh, what was the key of making that jump to the SEC? What, what was kind of the line of events that led you to the SEC in Kentucky? Bob Kessling and Glenn Thaxton. It's that simple. Um, it's connections. Roger brought up the, the broadcasting camp back in 2000, and that's when I first got to know Bob Kessling. And through Bob was introduced to Glenn Thaxton and Steve Early and so many other people uh, in Knoxville and, and in the business, uh, one of those being Mike Dodson, who was one of the key um, decision makers in that hire at Kentucky in 2005. And Mike Dodson didn't know me. He had a CD with some some game uh, examples on there from women's basketball and, and baseball. But he did know Bob. He did know Glenn. And their opinion meant something to him. Uh, their reputation was good. And because they were willing to stick their neck out for me, uh, he gave me an opportunity. And, you know, there's there's no magic to this. I mean, it is it's that it's that connection with people and the networking, I think, that helps so much, especially when you're just getting started out. Now, I'll tell you one other story, too. And, and again, here's a difference. The best job I never got was at Campbell University in Bowie's Creek, North Carolina. It was the first job I applied for. Uh, right after I graduated college at middle and they were getting ready to start playing football at Campbell. Uh, they were playing basketball. Uh, they were going to build a brand new basketball arena, but at that time they played in the smallest gym in division one, less than a thousand people. And I got called for an interview or they flew, they flew me over on an airplane. Somebody picked me up at the airport in Raleigh and drove me to Bowie's Creek. I mean, this was first class all the way. And I thought I had a good interview. And when I left, I felt confident that I was going to be able to get the job. And lo and behold, I got a call two weeks later, and I didn't get it. And I was crushed. And then four months later, the Kentucky job opens. And it works out. And I'm thinking, what sense does this make? Because in my mind at that point, you're thinking, 
a place like Campbell's a great place to break in because it's a smaller school. They don't have a big network. Uh, you know, I got no shot at a place like Kentucky because they don't know who I am. And because of Bob and Glenn and making that connection with them back in 2000, it, uh, it opened that door for me. So what I would tell you, if you're a young broadcaster that's just starting out, if you're someone that maybe hasn't really made networking a priority in your career, reach out to people. Ask them to listen to your tape. Um, ask them for advice uh, to, to share their story with you about how they were able to get to where they are today. Make those connections because they are valuable. And I will tell you, in the case of Bob Kessling, he's my best friend in the business. There's no question. And he's one of my best friends, period, now, 20 years later. But he is, without question, my best friend in the industry. And I don't make any decision without picking up the phone to call Bob and, and letting him listen and kind of tell me if I'm on the right path or not. And you get the Kentucky job, and you mentioned your last few years you felt different about how you were announcing the games than you did those early years. So what were some of the changes you made during your tenure at Kentucky? Well, I think I got more comfortable with the process as a whole. You know, I, I had developed a really good routine with regard to how I was preparing for the broadcast. Um, I, I was at a point where I felt like I was communicating with the audience at a higher level. Some of that coincided with the teams being good. Uh, you know, I, and I think it's just bouncing ideas off of other people because doors were opened through being a part of, of the host communications family at one point and later the IMG family. Uh, where you just had all these other guys who were working for other schools under that same umbrella that you could send a tape to and say, really pick this apart for me and tell me what you think. And I was getting a ton of reps. I mean, in addition to doing the women's basketball and baseball games at UK, I was having to write a daily feature and record that every day. So I was getting a lot of writing experience that I wouldn't have otherwise had. Um, I was doing high school football for one of the affiliates in Clark County, the next county over. So I was getting to do a little bit of football. I was writing a pregame show and hosting our football pregame show. I was producing the football broadcast. Uh, so I, I got to really understand the nuts and bolts of how that's supposed to work and when's the right time to get a read in, when's the right time to go to a scoreboard. Uh, all those things helped. And I think in those terms today, I, I believe I probably think more like a producer than I do a broadcaster, to be honest with you, just because I did games by myself for a long time. And I was all of it. I was the broadcaster. I was the producer. I was the engineer. And, um, you know, I think that's valuable. And I'm better today because I had to do all of it. So that's a long answer to a simple question, but I think a combination of all those things probably helped me. Well, you grew up with a reverence of John Ward calling Tennessee games, one of your early influences, but then you get to a place like Kentucky where there's such a great history as well of broadcasting. You look at Kaywood Ledford, Ralph Hacker, and now to Tom Leach, and it's been similar with you at State uh, with Jack Crystal having such a legacy. Uh, I'm curious about those last two I mentioned, Kaywood and Jack Crystal. What have you learned about those guys in your time at Kentucky and now Mississippi State, and how do they influence you now? I'll tell you a really good Kaywood Ledford story. Um, and obviously, Kaywood had passed long before I ever got to uh, Kentucky. He passed in 2001, retired in 92. Um, I'm in the interview with Mike Dodson and Steve Angelusi and a guy named Rick Thompson, who at that time was responsible for marketing in the athletic department at UK. And Mike asked me who my influences were. And here's this 25-year-old kid, well, 24 at that point. It was before my birthday in January. And um, I'm sitting there, and I said, well, you know, I grew up listening to the best there ever was. I listened to John Ward. And, you know, I learned so much from working games at WCRK, running the control board and covering the local spots and, and just getting to hear him do football and basketball. And Mike let me say my piece, and he leaned back in the chair, and he goes, John's fantastic. He goes, but our guy was better. And I said, really, who was your guy? And he said, Kaywood Ledford. Never heard of him. Um, because I grew up, I was 12 
uh, wasn't even 12. I was 11 when Kay Wood Ledford retired. So I remember Ralph Hacker and Sam Bowie. That's, that's the first duo I remember doing Kentucky games on the radio during basketball season. And I got the job, and I remember very early uh, in, in March, I guess, late March, I was doing baseball. Uh, I come back, and I go downstairs in the office uh, at Main Street in Lexington, and there's a stack of CDs, and they're all Kaywood Ledford games with a Post-it note tacked on that said, listen and learn. And, you know, Kaywood, what I have learned about Kaywood Ledford from others, and I'd love to learn about the guys who aren't with us anymore because they were all the masters of it. Um, a guy named Dan Manley, who I was fortunate to do high school games with while I was in Kentucky, Dan listened to Kaywood as a young man. And he said, the thing that's great about Kaywood is it's kind of like riding a roller coaster. You go out of the station and things are pretty level. And then the action builds as you climb up that first hill, and then he takes you on every peak and every valley. But he wasn't a screamer. If he raised his voice, it was because the moment called for it. And he could do things with an economy of words. And I think all those things are credits to, to him and how he really worked at the craft. Jack Crystal is probably, I would think technically, maybe the greatest announcer in SEC history. Uh, time, score, down, distance. And, and that comes from the instruction he received from Duty Noble, who was the athletic director at State when he was hired in 1953. I want you, <clears throat> I want you to tell the radio audience how much time's left. I want you to tell them the score, who's got the ball, and cut out the bull. And Jack, Jack did that. Uh, and did it very well. And as he got older uh, and certainly more established, uh, did not sugarcoat things. If State played well, he told you. If State didn't play well, he told you that too. And I think that uh, that's a credit to him that he wanted people to have a really accurate understanding of what was happening. And he he endeared himself to people because of it. You mentioned your friendship with Bob Kessling and you've talked about voices of SEC past. What's the current fraternity like amongst voices? I mean, you see each other at games, you see each other at tournaments. Um, do you guys offer feedback to each other? Do you listen to each other? I assume you do. What What is that fraternity like amongst SEC voices? Well, I can't speak for everybody, but I can tell you my experience is that sometimes those things, th those comments are unsolicited. I haven't gone out and asked a lot of the guys to listen to anything that I've done, but boy, I was 10 feet tall um, during this past basketball season. We're playing at Florida, and I walked out of the press room onto the floor, and Mick Hubert's standing out there, and Mick's one of the, the deans now, and uh, he walks over and shakes hands with me and tells me that he listened to me doing a game while he was out walking one Saturday afternoon and he enjoyed how I sounded. Man, I was on a cloud when he said that because here's a guy who's been doing this for a long, long time who's really good at what he does. Uh, and that meant the world to me. I get a nice note occasionally. Chris Stewart's been great to send notes along. Uh, he'll text me because in basketball, I think it's easier for all of us to hear one another because the pregame shows aren't nearly as long. It's not an all-day event. Um, the games go on from you know lunchtime basically until late at night if you're listening to guys on the West Coast. So I think we're probably all more familiar with one another in in terms of what what we do on the air in that sport. But um, you know, these guys have all been great to me, and I had a relationship with some of them that went back to when I was doing baseball uh, at Kentucky because there were several guys that were doing basketball, football, and baseball at the SEC schools. So I, I didn't feel so much like a new guy when I started doing football and men's basketball at State in 2017. I just felt like I kind of changed shirts and, and roles a little bit, but still saw a lot of the same faces. Um, we all get along. Uh, we all, I think, enjoy each other's company. If we don't, we certainly fake it very well. Um, and, you know, I did a thing with, with all the other guys back uh, in the summer where we had a, a group Zoom call about an hour and a half just talking about life that uh, they rolled out as a podcast. And it was great fun because I think it's probably the first time that this current group of us have all been together 
in one place. Uh, and it, it's just rare that it happens. So I, I think the world of all of them. Uh, and, you know, I'm one of the newer ones, but uh, they've made me feel like I've been here for a long time, and I appreciate that. And I assume for you, somebody who grew up listening to John Ward, it was always a dream to be the voice of an SEC school. So here now, the Mississippi State job comes open. And I've read that you've applied for jobs in the past and you've gone through that disappointment of not getting the job to be the voice of a school. What did you do differently this time around, if anything? What was that interview process like with Mississippi State? Well, um, I never came here for a face-to-face interview. We did everything on the phone. Um, and the logic in that uh, was explained to me later that if we're hiring a radio guy, we're more interested in how they sound than, than needing to see them face-to-face. And I understand that. Uh, if I'm being totally honest with, with all of you, the thing that was different here that was different from the other ones is I knew the athletic director. Um, so John Cohen was the first baseball coach I worked with, the University of Kentucky. I didn't know in 2005 that he had any ambition to be an athletic director, and he may very well have not known that in 2005. But we worked well together. We enjoyed one another. We used to have great conversations on road trips uh, about things outside of the game. And he came back to state to coach in 2008 and decides he wants to be an administrator, wants to get out of coaching. And when Jim Ellis retired uh, at the end of this would have been 20, the 16-17 season, when Jim decided to retire from football and men's basketball, I shot a text to John and I said, hey, you know, I don't know when the appropriate time is, but when that time comes, I'd like to talk to you about this. And we had a really productive conversation about it. Uh, I went through the process just like everyone else. I think they got it down to three or four at the end, and for the first time, I was the last guy standing, and, uh, you know, here we are. And again, I give credit to all those people who helped along the way. Uh, John Ward gets a hand in it. Bob Kessling has a huge hand in it. Um, Woody Durham gets a piece of the credit for helping me learn how to prepare, and Mike Dodson, because Mike taught me the little things that make a difference in a broadcast and you know you you get all of those things in your favor and then you get somebody on the other side of the equation that is familiar with you and you get that magic uh you get that magic moment that you're looking for in your career and you get to mississippi state and you've had some familiarity like we talked about in the sec with kentucky so a lot was familiar but how'd you go about the process of really learning all about the new program you were coming into and really ingratiating yourself into that mississippi state fan base well uh, you do a lot of reading but again i'm fortunate in that i work with people uh, on our broadcast matt wyatt who played quarterback at mississippi state for jackie sherrill Jay Perry, who went to school at Mississippi State and has been a lifelong Bulldog. Richard Williams, who was a basketball coach here, was an assistant coach before that at State, who could tell you a lot about the history of the basketball program, even going back to his days as a student when Babe McCarthy was the coach here and Bailey Howell was playing uh, for the Bulldogs. Uh, so that, that helped more than anything. Just having those people as resources, being able to call them, being able to sit down and go, okay, explain to me why this series is important. Um, The other thing that helped me is the first year I was here, uh, the Alumni Association and the Athletic Department put me on the road a lot. I spoke to a lot of Rotary and Civitan clubs. I spoke to alumni associations in counties throughout the state. And it really gave me a feel of what the Mississippi State fan base was like. And it is a passionate fan base. It's one that wants their team to do well, and it's loyal. Win, lose, or draw. And let's be honest, there have been a lot more lean years than there have been heavy ones in Mississippi State history. So I think that gave me a very important perspective and, uh, you know, you, you want to do your best because now it becomes personal. You've been out in the state. You've had a chance to shake hands with some of these folks who are listening to you, folks who can't always get to the games, folks who are working in their farms, folks who are out in the deer stand in November. Uh, you want to do the best you can for them. And that was valuable 
for me to make that connection. And we mentioned earlier, uh, you grew up a big fan of John Ward. He had some classic phrases that he used. Jack Crystal also is similar in Mississippi State. Rapid and maroon and white to end uh, Bulldog victories for so many years. And you've used that call a couple of times with a kind of a tip of the cap to Jack Crystal. How'd that all come about for you, uh, making sure that you're able to say something that's important to Mississippi State fans, but also give proper credit to where credit's due? Well, we do it after every football win, because that's when, when Jack did it. And there was a big debate about that. Um, I think Jack Crystal is, is an iconic figure at Mississippi State, and I don't believe anybody would argue with me uh, when, when I make that statement. Uh, he did the games here for over a half of a century. Uh, I don't think that, that State has – I think State's still got a ways to go before they will have played more games uh, without Jack – you know, or, or I forget the stat. There's a crazy stat about the percentage of games in the history of the program that have been played with Jack Crystal and the percentage without him going back to before the invention of radio. So he's he, his shadow looms large. There's no question about that. I think that rapid and maroon and white is a Jack tradition and a Jack phrase, but I also think it's a part of the fabric of Mississippi state history. So, John Cohen, the AD, a couple other folks that, that he trusts, uh, leans on for advice, some folks that I talked to in some of these, these groups I told you I went out in the state to visit with. We polled them and just said, if we want to do this and do it in a way that not only keeps that tradition alive for Mississippi State, but also keeps Jack and his memory alive, how would you feel about it? And I'll tell you early on, it was 50-50. Uh, because there were people that, you know, really thought that's Jack Crystal. That belongs to Jack. So uh, the compromise was in the immortal words of the iconic Jack Crystal, you can wrap this one in maroon and white. So we give credit where credit's due. We honor Jack in that way for being the voice of the Bulldogs. And we also keep something alive, I think, that is a tradition to Mississippi State people. And you mentioned the passion, the loyalty from the Mississippi State fan base. Were you dialed in that first year in the fan reaction and the listeners? Did, did you hear a lot of what fans thought about the new voice of their team? Was that something that um, was in front of you a lot your first year? No, I learned a long time ago, Kyle, uh, early on at Kentucky. Don't pay attention to that stuff. And, you know, when, when you go out in a community – People come up, they'll shake your hand, and they'll tell you how much they appreciate you. And that means a lot. It really does. But what I've learned, and, and it may be as prevalent in, in this year 2020 than, than it has been at, at any other time in, in the history of the Internet, the Internet can be a vile and nasty place. And I just don't need that much vileness and nastiness in my life. Uh, so it's hard enough for me to get up and do it every day, let alone – get up and worry about what somebody else thinks. All I can tell you is I put everything I've got into it. I work hard at it. I, it's what I love to do. I take pride in my work. And you're going to get the best effort that I can give every time that I put a headset on, every time that I host a show. I just don't like going off half-cocked on any of this stuff. So if that's good enough for the person listening, I'm, I'm thankful for that. If it's not goodness knows there are plenty of other alternatives out there for people to get information other than me and I respect their their freedom to be able to choose wherever they want to go to listen to it but um, I just don't get wrapped up in it I don't now before we get to the play-by-play -play and the preparation side of this podcast have you thought about the prospect of now working with Mike Leach and and just the personality that he has especially those coaches shows and a two-pronged question. You, you did have one year of crossover with Dan Mullen, me being a Florida guy. I want to ask about what that year was like with, with Coach Mullen. Dan Mullen was the first person to call me when I got the job at Mississippi State. Um, I was standing in the driveway in Lexington. My cell phone rang. It was a 662 number. I was not ignoring calls from 662 area codes at that point because I just didn't know who everyone was yet. And I answered the phone, and the guy on the other end of the line says, hey, congratulations. We're glad you're going to be here to be a part of it. Looking forward to seeing you when you get to town. Never introduced himself. 
And this goes on for a minute, a little more maybe. And I said, you've got me at a disadvantage. I said, and I'm embarrassed to ask. I said, but who is this? And he said, I'm Dan Mullen. I'm the football coach. And at that point, it's like, okay, so here's the first time I've screwed up since I've been here. Um, Dan Mullen was great to me in, in one year. Uh, I liked working with him. He was agreeable. Uh, he was honest. Uh, I appreciated his candor on a lot of things. And I think he's a fantastic football coach. And, you know, he proved that here, certainly, with what he was able to do developing quarterbacks, uh, using his system and finding the pieces that fit it well and taking this program to heights that it had never been to before. Um, he'll have great success at Florida. Uh, I don't have any doubt in my mind about that. And having been there once before as an assistant coach, he understands exactly what he's getting into. But uh, Dan was great. And I've been fortunate. All the coaches I've worked with at State have been wonderful. Even at going back to Kentucky and, and Middle Tennessee and Walter State, man, I tell you, I, I've lived a charm existence now because I can't recall a coach that I could sit there and say, I just really didn't have a great relationship with that person. I, I can't recall anybody where I'd be able to say that. Uh, Matthew Mitchell and I are, are still great friends. Uh, the women's coach at UK, um, I had a lot of respect for Mickey DeMoss uh, because she worked with Pat Summit, and, and I knew what they did at Tennessee when I was growing up, and, and they were in their heyday there. Um, I, I had great uh, friendship with Stephanie Smith, who was the women's coach at Middle when I was there. Andy McCollum was the football coach. I hosted Andy's show. He was great. Kermit Davis, who's the coach at Ole Miss now. Kermit was great to me when I was at Middle when he was coaching men's basketball there. Steve Peterson, who left us, unfortunately, earlier this year. Um, Steve was one of the true gentlemen, just a wonderful soul uh, that coached baseball at Middle. And then all the coaches here, Dan, Joe Moorhead the last two years and Ben Howland in basketball is is a wonderful man. Uh, so I, I've, I've been fortunate in that respect. And, you know, I, I don't know what it's going to be like with Coach Leach. I haven't really had a lot of time with him because of all the stuff that's going on. It's just been hard to be around folks. But um, what I do like is that he doesn't mince words. He's straight shooter. And uh, I think he's honest with people. And, and I respect that. And you know, I'm, I'm going to talk football with him and whatever direction it goes is the direction it's going to go. Uh, I think a lot of people can go into these press conferences sometimes and they're trying to bait him into one of these legendary answers. The best thing for those, if they happen organically, um, but he's got a lot of interests and, and I would like to sit down with him sometime, maybe outside of football and talk about some of those just because I think they're fascinating. Yeah, you're certainly going to have a lot of fun with Mike Leach, and we're glad to have him uh, in the SEC as a head coach. This is really our favorite time of the show. It's time to talk preparation, so I'm basically just going to yield the floor to Professor Price. We understand you have football, basketball, and baseball charge ready to go, so I'll just kind of let you uh, start with football. We'll go to basketball and baseball, and then we'll pick it up from there. No, you said bring charts, so, so <laughs> I have brought charts. Um, so this is what the football chart started as and hope you can see that uh i'll hide behind it your screen will just improve because i'm gone here um <laughs> this is kind of a combination of a couple of guys uh, there is some bob kessling in here because of the manila folder and there is some woody durham in here because woody had the boxes now this is a spring game chart from a couple years ago so you got the same team on there but the reason I kind of got away from it was if you look at it, it looks pretty busy. Um, there's a whole lot of stuff on there. Uh, and this is just a spring game, mind you. This is not even a, an actual game with two teams playing. Um, but it's, it's basic. It's two or three deep, depending on the guys that play at a given position. You've got the vitals below. There are no stats on this one just because it's a spring game. And then all the stuff in green – on the periphery here, these are things that I thought were important to talk about or things that I wanted to, to try to touch on over the course of the game with Matt and with Jay. So uh, that's what you see in that one. And specialist always off on the side just because I think it's easier to keep up with. 
you see I've got down here questions specifically I want to talk to Jay about. Um, it's kind of stream of consciousness. Once you get beyond, once you get beyond the boxes, uh, anything kind of goes in, in, in the margins. So um, I just found it to be a little bit too busy. And maybe more importantly, my spotter found it to be too busy and made it tough for him to, to pick up on where he needed to go to find the information quickly. So that evolved into what we've been using for the last two years, which comes primarily from Jack Crystal. Um, Matt White, I told you, does the games with me. Uh, Matt played in the Cotton Bowl. I think the last year he was on the state team in 99, and Jack's daughter was kind enough after Jack passed to give Matt a spot board with his name on it from that Cotton Bowl game against Texas. So Matt shows that to me after we go speak to a group one night uh, in North Mississippi. And I said, you know, this, this would really work. So it's, it's two boards, not one, but basically Jack had all these squares and every player on his board got a square. They don't all get a square on mine. I like to split the squares up again, because you just got so many guys who play, um, but this would be defense. So State was playing with four down linemen. So the guys at the very top were the starters and then falling in behind with regard to where they are on the two day two deep linebackers here, corners and safeties. And uh, again, you've got the name, the vitals, uh, stats in red, anything that's significant there. I don't put stats down for everybody in football because there are just too many of them. And if it's something that's relevant, if they lead the league or they're in the top, you know, in the league in certain categories, it's worth putting on there. But I don't reference the numbers a ton outside of situations, third downs, what they need to do there. Um, and then on the other side, you've got the opposing defense. So in this case, Tennessee's defense uh, from the game in Knoxville. And more information, just because I knew the state team pretty well by that point, and the Tennessee team is the one that you, you're only going to see one time. So more there in the event that something comes up that's noteworthy. And the same thing on offense. So offensive line at the top, um, then you've got wide receivers, tight end, excuse me, over here, uh, and then – quarterback, running back, wide receivers, and all the specialists, again, down the side and coaches down here in the event you need to reference anything there. Um, same thing for Tennessee on offense. And, again, vitals. Um, I color code everything um, just because it's easier for me to pick up on, even the teams. And sometimes it's hard to find the right color to match the right team, uh, but we try to get as close as we can with that. And – um, I handwrite it every week for better or for worse. And it is a process. Uh, I will tell you that a lot of those lines are drawn in by hand too to separate some of those boxes, depending on if we need three or even four deep at a given position late in the year or injuries or anything else that pops up. So, um, and I find it just helps me to, to remember, uh, Woody Durham told me, he, hand, he did everything by hand, and the reason he did it by hand was because he'd remember it. I used to do it on a computer, and I didn't think I could retain the information. And when I started doing it all by hand, it was it was much better for me. And uh, even though it takes longer, it's worth, I think, the extra investment in the time. Speaking of Woody, okay, uh, basketball. So this... This is the game that never happened. Uh, the last game that I was supposed to do was Tennessee and Alabama at the SEC tournament in Nashville. And I walked on the floor about an hour before we were supposed to go on the air, and Phil Brame met me uh, before I got to the free throw line, and he said, we're done. We're not going to play. And uh, so this was, this was the chart. And uh, you won't see any scoring or anything like that on there because the game never happened, but you will see the notes and the preparation and hopefully gather something from that. This is a much larger version of, of uh, something like Woody Durham used at Carolina. And that's where I got the idea from. And you've got all your players, um, guys that maybe don't play as much. I split the lines at the bottom to save space just in case they get in the game. 
Uh, you want to be able to say something about everybody, I think, when they get in because they've earned a spot. Um, up here, number of games they've played and in parentheses, a number of times they've fouled out or been disqualified. Uh, name, vitals. Um, over here in red, uh, I do points, rebounds. If they have an assist, a steal, or a block number that's significant, that'll make it on there too. Um, blue is field goal percentage, and then in parentheses, the number of three-point field goals they've made. Green is free throw percentage, and in parentheses, the number of attempts that a player has had at the free throw line. And then nobody, I'm looking to see, does anybody on this roster, no one has a number note of any kind, but if there's a significance to the number that they wear, I'll note that in this box. Down here, James Bolden, Beetle. Beetle was a nickname, so I put Beetle there in the number spot just to have a little more space. Um and notes out here, I also keep scoring these columns for the players. I'll keep a running score in the margins here uh, to try and keep up with runs, things that might happen in a game. And then bigger stories at the bottom, maybe one or two small ones on a team up here at the top in the margins. Again, it's very stream of consciousness. Um, where, what comes into your mind where do you have space to write it? Uh, that's that's kind of how it works for me. Uh, I'm looking to see if there's anything else on here. Well, there's one less team on here now, I can tell you <laughs> that. Um, I've had this folder for years. My mother worked in a hospital for 49 years, and they'd have these old doctor's charts lying around, and she'd pass along these old doctor's charts, and they made great covers for the basketball score sheets, so that's how I got into using them. Um yeah, nothing, nothing that stands out. And the big picture stuff, um, I'll read the Blue Ribbon Basketball Yearbook. Uh, so they have great capsules on the teams, and I'll pull some stuff from there. Um, the game notes are always really good at all the schools. You can pull a lot out of that. I'll read the newspapers uh, best I can to try and keep up with some things. And anything you pick up from talking to the other broadcasters sometimes that you can use too. And um, all that just goes in. And again, I won't use a fraction of this, but if Coach Williams makes a point about something and I know I've got something on the chart that I can kind of piggyback off of that comment with, it just helps our discussion, hopefully helps the listener understand better some of the, the, the key points in the game. So that's basketball. Now, I haven't done baseball in three years, um, so the, the, these are old. But this is a baseball scorecard. And this would have been from an SEC tournament game, South Carolina and Kentucky, I guess, in uh, 17. And, you know, pretty self-explanatory uh, lineup card here. Uh, I will go through and look over the course of a year uh, at who's played. So who are the guys that are going to be in the batting order? Uh, who are the guys that might come off the bench either as runners or uh, pinch hitters, uh, guys that they've, they've used in those spots frequently. I'll make notes for as many of those guys as I can. Um, and then, like obviously, defense over here. Is there anything noteworthy defensively? I might write that in in green. Anything related to the teams was written in green. Uh, anything in red uh, was related to um, was related maybe to the ballpark. Uh, related to, let's see, what like I say, it's been three years. I can't remember what my color codes were. Um, blue were coaches' notes. Black was players. Um, yeah, and, and any of that stuff, whatever you're comfortable with is, is what works. But both teams, uh, just a little something there. And I always looked at baseball a little different, too, from a standpoint of for a weekend, tournament game certainly is different. But for a weekend, I always looked at it as a, a basically a 27-inning game. So if I use three scorecards over the course of the weekend, the first one might be full of notes like that. Second and third one might look pretty bare uh, when you get to the end of them just because you're filling out the lineup basically and, and the defense and, and they're going to play the game. But I draw the notes off of that first one. Uh, so – that's kind of how I approach that. And I, and I can't tell you from, from having done it. Uh, and you know, so many, you know, three years ago, I can't tell you if anybody else uses that approach, if it's common or not, but it's what worked for me. 
but but I enjoyed it. Uh, Doug Flynn, who uh, played for the Big Red Machine, uh, Doug's in Lexington. He and I used to go in every year, and uh, we'd get a couple of these big scorebooks made up and uh, printed, and they'd last just a couple of seasons at a time, maybe depending on how many games they played. Uh, but uh, it it was just something I became comfortable with, and again, combination of two or three different scorecards I'd seen over the course of however many years doing baseball, 15 or whatever it was, and um, just what I became comfortable with. So so that's it. That's a look inside the madness. Um, and again, it, it may not make a lot of sense to a lot of people, but uh, it works for me. It's kind of like I say, my desk is never the neatest place in the world, but I know where everything is. You know, So it's, <laughs> that's kind of what we do. Well, that's certainly important. And you talked about how you had gone from football being on a computer to handwriting, and that helped you retain all that information. Anything else you've kind of streamlined as the years have gone along from your first days of calling, even back to your high school and college days? Anything you really streamlined to make sure you are focused on what's important for prep? Well, in basketball, you know, I handwrite everything in football every week. In basketball, what I'll do is I might I might keep a copy of a chart for a team that I know state's going to play multiple times. Uh, so I may read some preview stuff before the season starts. I might have some big picture notes on every team in the SEC. And then I'll put those charts together. I'll scan them into a computer file. I'll leave them there. And as we get closer to that game, I'll print them off. I'll start reading the paper because obviously a lot of stuff's transpired what's going on right now as a team comes into a game and it saves some time, um, especially that second time around. You know, what I'd tell you about football is, you know, by the time you, you build the chart, by the time you do your reading, you put your notes together. I keep a clipboard too. I didn't have anything to show you on the clipboard today uh, because I'd thrown all the papers out, but I keep a clipboard full of, of big notes, anecdotes, things like that, that I can keep by my side because you just can't put it all. On, on the chart. Uh, and I, I will use that time. I do all that in football. I've got 10 or 12 hours probably in every week, just in prep. And if you think about it, that's about twice as long as you're going to be on the air. And I think that's a pretty good barometer to, to judge, you know, how much time you're putting into it. Basketball early on, is a four or five hour process early in the season. By the time we get into conference and we play, we played half the year, I can do it probably in two or three and feel good about it. Um, again, it just, it, how comfortable are you with your team and then learning about the team that's coming in or have you seen the team that, that you're going to play before? Uh, if I was doing a national game and I was doing two new teams every week, or twice a week, it'd take longer. No question about that, because you got to learn a lot about both of them uh, in a very short period of time. We talked a lot about the preparation side of it, but from a play-by-play -play technique side of things, how descriptive do you like to get on radio? We all know, we all listen to Kevin Harlan on Monday Night Football on Westwood One, and we look at him as the gold standard, and, and that's the real extreme example of description and then you have the middle of the pack and maybe some people that don't describe nearly enough. What do you think is the right amount of description for football and basketball on the radio? I think that as a radio announcer, your job is to paint the most accurate picture that you can for the listener. They can't see what's happening. So I believe you try to explain everything that you can. I am not at the Kevin Harlan level. And he is the best, maybe the best that's ever done it, but he is certainly the best on the radio today. Um, in basketball, it's where, what kind of pass was it? Was it a chess pass? Was it a lob? Was it a bounce? Uh, if a guy shoots a layup, was it a left-hand layup? Was it a right-hand layup? Did he lay it up with two hands? Um, I think little details like that, as much as you can work them in, are important. Uh, I have not gotten to the belt high snap, uh, reaching right to grab the snap or left. I've not gotten to that point uh, yet. And I think some of that is just because football is still relatively new to me three years in. So I'm, I'm trying to do the best I can 
just to make sure that I'm doing the basics well. But uh, I, the goal, Kyle, is as much as I can think of to paint the most accurate picture I can, but it may vary from game to game. It's not something that consciously I'm thinking of. I may go back and listen to a half of a basketball game or a half of a football game every week, and I'll make some notes and say, you could do this better, you could describe this differently, and week to week it may vary. But uh, the goal is always as much as you can to paint the most accurate picture. And I'm sure you've gotten tapes from young broadcasters or just in general have listened to young broadcasters. For you, what's the biggest mistake that you hear from young guys coming up? I know for me, when I started out, I tried to do too much. Like I started, I tried to be Kevin Harlan too early before learning the foundations of like getting the facts right and making sure that you have everything in order. For you, when you listen to young guys and girls, what are some things that you hear? I think the ones that are just starting out, it's the basics. You know, not giving time, score, football down and distance, uh, not doing that enough. Uh, I think the games where there's a clock involved, it's easier to get into a routine in doing that uh, because time is an important element. When I listen to people do baseball, the score gets lost uh, because there is no clock. In basketball, you have reminders, at least, to go with the clock. You have the horn. Uh, Bob Kessling taught me early in my career in basketball, you give the score every time that a team puts the ball in the bucket, uh, every time the horn blows, every time out, every dead ball. Uh, and if you feel like that you don't have anything else to say, tell people what the score is again. You can never do it enough. Uh, in baseball, for me, it was I started keeping a pitch count, and it was every two or three pitches I tried to work it in. Every batter I tried to work it in. Uh, and, and again, in baseball, what's so important, you know, and, and, and you hear people that are just starting out who miss this sometimes. It's not just the score, but it's the score and the situation with every batter coming to the plate. So what I want to know is, What's the score of the game? Where are the runners if they're on base? How many out? Um, is the batter a left-hander or a right-hander? Uh, I will probably know at some point if the pitcher's a lefty or a righty, but tell me a little bit more about that individual matchup within the bigger game. And then tell me about the defense, because I think that's important. Are they playing a guy to pull? Are they playing him to hit it the other way? Have they left him an alley in left center field? doesn't take a lot of time to say those things but man it paints a much more vivid picture for people that's what I don't hear early and there's a reason for that because everybody's starting out and there are things that you learn what I had to learn early on I think the biggest thing I had to learn early on I thought every game was the seventh game of the World Series um, I, I yelled a lot uh, my voice over modulated I didn't have command uh, of, of the instrument per se and as I learned to do that, be more conversational, approach it in that way, uh, I got a much better handle on all of those things. And, you know, listening helps a lot. If you will listen to yourself, if you're willing to be critical of yourself, and even more so if you're willing to find people who will be critical of you, uh, that's important. It's, it's great to have other people listen to your tape. It's better to have people that you don't really know who will be very honest with you. Because as you become friends with people, what happens is, is that you gain favor in their eyes, and it's hard for them to tell you maybe the hard truth about something you need to hear, or maybe they just develop a blind spot to that because they're your friend. You got to find people who will be critical. Um, I found those outside, outside my group of friends I heard some things sometimes that I wasn't really sure I wanted to hear, and uh, I found out real quick that I wasn't probably as good as I thought I was at a young age. But today, that, that's some of the best advice I could have gotten because it forced me to think about it differently, and it forced me to get better. And uh, again, I think that's one of the best things you can do too. But to circle back to the beginning, long way around, 
Um, do the basics well first. Do the basics very well. Time, score, down, distance, situation. Once you've mastered that, that's the skeleton, okay? Then think of it as you're building Frankenstein's monster here. You've got the skeleton. Now the details, the, the anecdotes, all those things are just putting meat on the bones that are there. But I think if you ask most listeners, they're going to tell you what they want to know more than anything are the very basics. And the people who have been very good in this business do that better than anybody. You mentioned voice and screaming and realizing it's not always Game 7 of the World Series when you're on the air. Just anything else with voice that you've kind of learned as time has gone on to be able to control the instrument better? Well, microphones do a pretty good job amplifying you. Uh, you don't have to help them a lot. Uh, I think that's, that's probably the biggest thing for me. When, when you're in public speaking class in high school or college, you're taught to project, and that's important. You should project. You should speak from your diaphragm. I try to do all of those things. At the same time, the microphone will help you. So you don't have to necessarily stand up there and do Shakespeare to the whole world uh, because you've got that microphone in front of you. And again, I keep coming back to be conversational. If you think about the broadcast from a standpoint of having a conversation, just like the three of us are having right here, it changes how you speak. It, it does. It's not a dictation. It's not a lecture. It's not, I know more than you. You should listen to me. It's, it's very casual. And I think that changes, that changes the tone and the inflection and puts you more at ease than, than if you go into it thinking, I'm about to go and tell all of these people about the greatest game they've ever heard in their life. I just think that mindset changes all of it, and it falls into place. Final one from me, and I've asked this question to question to multiple SEC guys. I know I asked this to Chris Blair. He did mention the Swamp, but uh, favorite SEC venue? You've been in the league for a long time, dating back to Kentucky. What is your favorite SEC venue for football and basketball to date? Um, Neyland Stadium has been the coolest place I've done a game in football, but that probably more is an, an emotional connection to where I grew up, uh, and, and getting to be in a place that, you know, was pretty, pretty cool to me as a kid. Um, Tiger Stadium's a really cool place. Uh, I've been to the swamp before, uh, went with middle many years ago for football and yeah, Chris is right on that one. It's the atmosphere there is up there. Uh, I would tell you Starkville is a place that doesn't get near enough credit, and I'm not saying it because I'm the guy sitting here today. It's what I fell in love with when I came here with Kentucky uh, when Dak Prescott was playing in 2014, and I thought if this job opened, this atmosphere would be pretty cool, and it's it's a neat place now. It gets a bad rep uh, from a lot of folks, but it's a good atmosphere. So those come to mind uh, right away. Basketball, uh, Fayetteville. When they're rolling, man, it's good. Uh, it's it's a beautiful building. Uh, their fans are educated people. They love the game. Uh, it's a fun place to be. Uh, Tennessee is is good when Tennessee is good. That's another big building. Uh, it, it feels like an event when you go in there. Um, let me think if there's one more. South Carolina's been good. I think about that one a lot. Um, you know, the, their, their students turn out in, in big number um, when they're good, when they're winning. It's loud. They're right on the floor. It, it's a tough place. So, though, yeah, those three, those come to mind pretty quick. All right, Neil, we'll get you out on this. Uh, you're now the voice, and you're going into another season as the voice of Mississippi State football and men's basketball. And as we've talked about all throughout, you grew up a big fan of John Ward and knowing the history and the legends uh, that made these jobs uh, so appetizing to all of us, whether it's Kay with Ledford, Jim Fife, Eli here at Alabama. Now you're in one of these roles, and all of those guys are able to build their legends at a time where radio certainly was king. Now there's a lot of different options, whether it's television, whether 
it's internet streaming and along with the radio. So what's kind of the challenge for the voice of schools moving forward over the next 20 years and how are ways to continue to make sure that that role still plays a relevant um, place in every fan base? I believe that in the South, it will always play a role because it's tradition. And a lot of what we do in the South uh, in sports, in, in life, for better or for worse, is based on what generations of people before us in our families have done. I grew up listening to games. Every game wasn't on television in the late 80s and early 90s, but I grew up listening to games because my parents listened to games on the radio. Uh, that's what we did. So I think there's always going to be a relevance to it. In, in the rural states, states like Mississippi, Kentucky was a rural state when I was there. I think it's always going to be even more important because you have people that are just blue collar, hard workers that are running farms. They're out hunting and fishing, enjoying the outdoors. They don't get to every game. Might be a treat for them to ever come to a game. So they're going to listen because the team is part of the fabric of what they do. How do we stay relevant beyond that? Be prepared. Have engaging stories to share with people. Tell people about their team because that's what our specialty is supposed to be. We're supposed to cover our team better than anyone else does it because we're here 24-7, 365. You know, television's great. I got a lot of respect for the folks that I've met who work in that industry. They read a lot. They're connected to a lot of people. They do a good job. The reality is in the SEC, they've got to cover 14 teams. So you get one fourteenth of what they can do in a given week where the radio guys should be there. There shouldn't be an excuse for us to not know about our team. So that's the challenge is to go out and, and know everything you can be invested, be connected, share it with the fan base so they in turn can be connected and just do the very best you can at that every single day. And, and if you do, I think you'll earn people's respect. And I'll tell you this about, about listeners, and I've said this for a long time. People who consume games on the radio are smart people now. They are. They know, and they know if you're prepared or not. And that's what keeps me up at night. I worry, have I done enough? Am I ready? Um, could I have done one more thing here or there that could have provided a nugget maybe that I didn't have? I'll go back and listen to a game and kick myself because, oh, man, that would have been a great place to get that in. That That's the stuff I think that if you're in, in the business of radio, that's what you're thinking about. And um, it's not about the bigger picture nationally. It's not about this interesting storyline. It's about your team, and and it should be about your team predominantly for the course of the broadcast. And that's what we're trying to do here. I hope we're hitting the mark, and uh, you know I think that's that's a great goal for all of us in radio to have. Well, you certainly hit the mark, and you have for a long time. I've known you for many, many years, going back to your days at Kentucky, and I knew you'd be a great guest uh, for this show. Uh, we really thank you, Neil, for all the time you've given us, all the prep that you showed us. Uh, we really thank you for your time today. It's like Carol Burnett. I'm so glad we had this time together. Yeah. Um, guys, I appreciate it. I'm sorry you hit the bottom of the barrel less than four months in, but thank you. Thanks, Neil. All right. Our thanks to Neil Price of Mississippi State. We invite you to join us next week for another edition of Broadcaster Hour. So long, everyone.